Hello from the Financial Times in London. I'm Janine Gibson and this is News in Focus, where we offer our insights into the stories that matter. 2019 was the year when Saudi Arabia launched a long-awaited share offering in state oil company Aramco, when SoftBank lost its gloss, when accounting giants tightened their belts and when capitalism went woke. I'm joined to discuss the corporate year with our company's editor, Tom Braithwaite, and Brooke Masters, our comment and analysis editor. Tom, I'm going to start with you. Can you tell us what happened with the Saudi Aramco IPO? Well, it happened, finally, which is uh, some progress because it took months and months of delay. And eventually, this massive oil company floated in Riyadh. And it now does have the $2 trillion valuation that was so coveted by Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Why did it take so long? Investor scepticism, in short. I think one problem was that the Saudis would have liked to have listed this in New York, which is the biggest, deepest capital market in the world. But the main problem there was that they could have been sued for their alleged role in the 9-11 terrorist attacks, which Saudi Arabia has always denied, but it opens the window to litigation in the US, which they desperately wanted to avoid. So that was one problem. But the other problem was that most international investors did not think this oil company, which is still fairly opaque and still very much under the control of the kingdom, could justify that valuation, particularly at a time where oil prices have fallen and when there is greater concern about global oil companies in a world where carbon is considered toxic. Mm-hmm. And what changed? The Saudis raised the money. Yeah, well, it got its public oil company to hit the local market in Riyadh. What it couldn't do was secure a hefty amount of international investors. So there was a lot of pressure on local Saudi investors, some of whom were the same people who were held against their will at a hotel, the Ritz-Carlton. Remind us what happened then. Back in 2017, several of Saudi Arabia's richest families were held at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel. People like Prince Al-Walid, who is quite known as an international investor, ended up with an enforced stay whilst their assets were probed by the state and ultimately some of those assets were confiscated by the state. So these same people, Saudi Arabia then knocked on their door and said, we'd really like you to buy into the... Saudi Aramco IPO. And these people generally said, yes, yes, we would very much. Unlike everyone else, we would like to buy these shares. And so they did. And it is floated. And this little sliver of equity has been sold. And that is what justifies the $2 trillion valuation. Now, it's not really like Apple or other massive mega caps whose stock is freely traded. So if and when that ever happens, we might get a more realistic assessment of what it's worth. Brooke, Saudi's been a big investor in SoftBank and the Vision Fund, which we've heard quite a lot about this year. How will the sort of scaling down of the IPO affect Saudi Arabia's ability to continue putting money into what I think we now call the troubled Japanese fund? Presumably, it might make it more difficult. I mean, Saudi is already having to raise more money to diversify the economy. And so presumably, they're not going to want to be quite so free with their cash. And of course, SoftBank is probably not the place that they would like to put their money anymore anyway, because SoftBank itself, run by Masayoshi Son, has taken some really big bets on some companies that have not so far come good. Mm. Specifically, I think WeWork would be the most obvious one, which is the shared office space company that tried to list and failed to, at which point not only did it not sell equity, but its lenders decided 
decided not to lend it any money, and SoftBank had to go rescue it. And its valuation has been cut significantly. I'm sure Tom knows exactly by how much. He's about to tell us, I think. I think from $47 billion, they tried various levels down, but ultimately it ends up with a you know sub $10 billion valuation. And as you say, it's failed to go public. Can they continue to trade? Yeah, I mean, as long as SoftBank and others are willing to continue to pour cash into it because it is still heavily loss-making. But the other thing they've done is scale back their growth strategy so they are not spending as much money on new builds so they think they can get to somewhere near break-even in the coming months. They've also fired a lot of people, which helps. SoftBank's image obviously takes quite a battering in its credibility. How does that affect its ability to keep on investing? Well, they have been trying to raise a second fund, and it has not worked as well as one would hope. And it's particularly problematic because, as you may remember, their first fund has an extremely unusual structure where it's not just people putting in cash. It's people putting in cash, and then also they had to put in loans, basically. So they don't have as much cash as your classic private equity fund would have. They actually have to pay interest on the money they've got. So I think if they don't have successes relatively soon, the way it's structured means that the lack of success will be magnified and make it that much harder for them. Sun has apologized already and said he was too credible. And he has also started putting in new governance requirements on the companies that the fund invests in. Mm. Is there a way forward for them, do you think? I've always been sceptical about some of the companies they've invested in and some of the valuations they've invested at. They seem to have got quite late into the private tech game and got into it in a massive way. One of the most ridiculous investments was WAG, this company that walks your dog for you, which they've just finally pulled out of. WeWork is the big characteristic bet, and if that went well, then all would be fine, but it hasn't. So, I mean, Massason has this ability really proven in Alibaba to pick one winner that has generated massive amounts of returns. So if there's just one company within this portfolio, then it could be judged a success. But if you look at companies like Uber, which IPO'd this year and has now fallen a third in value, if you look obviously at WeWork and the sort of marginal bets like WAG, then there's little really to say that this thing is going to be a success. Brooke, talk to us about the big four. They've had quite the 12 months with so many scandals. What would you say? Where do they end up this year? What's interesting is it hasn't been as bad as you think. I mean, they have been criticised and fined, record fines, record discipline for dreadful audits of companies that later went bust. But in an actual practical level, their revenues are up. And their dominance of the auditing business of the FTSE 100 is up. They have taken a lot of terrible press, and they're probably, I'm guessing, having a harder time recruiting the best and the brightest, but I would not cry for them. The thing to remember is this time last year, the Kingman Review was suggesting that they ought to be separating audit from all their other businesses, maybe broken up, do all this stuff. And then the CMA, the Competition and Markets Authority, in April said the same thing and said they were going to move forward, but nothing has actually happened. So in fact... Life continues for them. They still make a lot of money. KPMG, which is the one that has struggled more than the others, has A, been involved in more of the scandals, and also it has had profits problems. And so it has had to do meaningful cutbacks and trims. They had a famous thing where they stopped paying for people's phone calls, Mm. and they, they took a lot of bad press. But I think it's worth remembering that if you go back maybe a dozen years You could have made exactly the same argument. You know, lots of concern about their dominance of the auditing market, lots of concern that audits weren't going well. This is, remember, post-Enron and all that sort Mm. of thing. And there were four then, and there are four now. So could they relax a bit and feel that they've survived the structure reform calls, or will this all come back? 
It's not clear. Their regulator has a new person who's in charge of it, Andrew Tyree, who is actually a serious guy. And it is possible he will try to do more. At the moment, there's no legislation giving power to him to do more. It will really depend on how much Boris Johnson's government cares about this stuff. I mean, it was on the agenda of the previous government. Is it now? We don't know. These are among our most read stories of the year. Any particular highlight for you? The thing about this is, as there were so many scandals, it's hard to pick a favourite. Do you have one? Well, I think fairly swiftly after I joined the Financial Times, I learned both that I think KPMG had a private members club in Mayfair and was going to be forced to sell its private members club in Mayfair. And that spoke to many of my preconceptions about accountancy. I would have to say they were probably crying in their martinis. <laughs> oh, it's not funny. And, um, uh, Absolutely not. We were Very all... serious business. <laughs> um, but if we're being woke about capitalism, then we should discuss one of the continuing themes of this year and indeed into next year, which is this sort of idea of moral money and the new agenda, which the FT is championing. Explain to us what that movement is about. It's basically capitalism time for a reset, as the slogan goes. Largely, this is a view that the previous way we have viewed companies for really probably the last 30, 40 years, which is that their main purpose is to maximize profits above all else and get as much money as possible to their investors, is in fact not a good way to run a railroad. That in the long term, squeezing down your employees, you know, refusing to pay a reasonable amount of taxes, minimizing your expenses, outsourcing everything you can outsource is perhaps not a long-term sustainable thing. You know, you end up with things like the French Revolution, but of course in a much more industrial form. Or maybe you end up with Hong Kong, I suppose. Mm. So the idea, and this really took flight this summer when the Business Roundtable, which is an organization of the highest and mightiest and richest CEOs in America, issued an announcement saying, actually, you know what? We've been wrong for 40 years. We need to think about other stakeholders, employees, communities, the environment. It would be nice if we didn't destroy the air. And we are such wonderful people. Now, truthfully, this is a great sentiment. Many people also see this as a way for businesses to sort of fend off criticism and also make it much harder to judge their performance. Because if you have a number you're trying to hit, which is how much money you get back to your shareholders, it's quite easy to measure whether you've succeeded or failed. We're going into a possible recession in the next few years because cycles eventually end. If you stop measuring by how much money you are making and you say, look how nice we are, look how many schools we built or how many children we educated or whatever else you did, then it's possible to still get really big bonuses while not making any money. So I have to confess, as you can hear, I'm somewhat sceptical about this. That is extraordinarily cynical. I'm shocked. Are you shocked? I don't think your cynical explanation is right, Brooke. I think there's a different cynical explanation that explains (laughs) it, which is that the likes of Jamie Dimon are quite annoyed that shareholders can haul him to an annual meeting every year. And if you go to these annual meetings, as I have, and watched him, he looks quite annoyed, and ask him questions and put him through his paces. And that activist investors can buy a sliver of a company and create a noise and move the stock and demand the company makes changes. If you look at Elliott Management incredibly successfully, that is what they're really after. It's not, oh, you know, we're going to elevate customers, employees, suppliers and communities, as they say in the memo. It's that they don't want shareholders to have as much power as they do. You know, that is still not as much power as they might have. 
But I think boardrooms in the US have been taken aback in the last few years as activists have really caused trouble. So you mean it's preemptive? Well, it's a, it's a, you know, we want to lessen the power of shareholders. As the Business Roundtable put it in August, that since 1978, they have said that we answer to shareholders. And now we're saying we're not answering to shareholders. We're answering to this broader, nebulous community supplier environment. So, in fact, you're just diluting your accountability. That is a danger, yes. And how has the campaign gone down with FT readers, Brooke? It's been interesting. I mean, our readers, actually, many of them genuinely believe that there should be a return to a different kind of capitalism. Because they're less cynical than you two. They are. They're also actually not wrong that, of course, if we blow up the planet, there is nowhere for us to live. So perhaps caring about the environment would be a good thing. There is a lot of optimism. I have to confess, as the opinion editor, I must get 15, 20 pitches a week of the next businessman or investment group or whatever promising they're going to save the world. And I actually... In all seriousness, in addition to my totally cynical view of this, I think there is a sense by responsible business people, many of whom I believe read the FT, that our governments are hung up in populist rhetoric, Mm. some of them in misguided deregulatory efforts, and that, in fact, if businesses don't do the right thing, no one will make them. And I genuinely believe and I do hear this from business people, that they feel like, okay, if Donald Trump's going to pull out of the Paris Agreement to stop global warming, they're going to have to start doing stuff anyway because they do have children as well. They have children and grandchildren, and they can see what's going on. Thanks, Tom and Brooke, and thank you for listening. Don't forget, if you missed our recent episodes on China's bid to end its reliance on US technology, how a Malta murder probe is raising alarm bells in Brussels, or Paul Volcker's message for the next generation, you can subscribe and listen on all of your usual podcast platforms. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.